The text for this morning's message is before you. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Will you rise as I read the scriptures? This is God's word. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, who said, Say to the to daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowd going ahead of him, and those followed were shouting, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Our Father, I pray that your word will speak to our hearts, that as the focus was riveted upon Jesus, the Son of God, that first Palm Sunday, so our focus will be riveted upon him, and that, Father, this morning we shall know afresh what this text means and what it means to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Palm Sunday, as we call it, is recorded in all four Gospels. And it is important that we understand the importance of this. Each gospel gives an aspect of Palm Sunday that the other does not give. And it is interesting because I want to use that this morning as the basis for the message as I talk about four snapshots from each of the gospels concerning Palm Sunday. Four texts, one message. Not four message, for each text. It is interesting of the importance of this week in the life of Jesus. Listen. A quarter of the book of Matthew, a quarter of the book of Matthew, chapters 21 to 28, is taken up with this week in Christ's life. Imagine, a quarter of the book of Matthew is taken up with Christ's life. A third of Mark, a third of Mark is taken up with this week in Christ's life. 
in the life of Christ. A fifth of Luke is devoted to this week in the life of Christ. Half of the Gospel of John is taken up with this one week in the life of Jesus. That gives you some idea of the importance of this. And Luke, who was not one of the apostles, or the disciples, but who did a thorough investigation as a physician concerning this, gives us snapshots of what it meant to have been there that Sunday we call Palm Sunday. Each snapshot is focusing upon Christ. Each is giving something about his life that is unique so that when we are able to grasp the importance of this, it will affect our lives. We want to go right into the text this morning and begin with Matthew's Gospel. The snapshot that Matthew gives to us is that Jesus is a fulfiller of prophecy. That what was happening on Palm Sunday, Matthew wants us to understand. Verse 4 puts it this way. This took place in order that. Some translation says, now this took place. Who is the prophet that spoke? Zacharias is speaking. 500 years before the event took place on Palm Sunday, Zacharias prophesied that this was going to take place. The amazing thing about this is the precision with which it took place. There is an idea that from where Jesus was to Jerusalem was 15 miles. Everywhere that Jesus went before, he walked. Every place that Jesus went, it was his feet that took him there. Just before he got to Jerusalem, about 13 miles now he had walked. Three miles, uh, three miles, 12 miles he had walked. Three miles to Jerusalem, he stopped. The procession with him and his disciples came to a halt. And Jesus said, I want you to go into Jerusalem. The rest of the gospel will give us the same story. I want you to go into Jerusalem and I want you to go and prepare. Get, there is going to be at a certain place, there's going to be a donkey and a colt, a colt and a foal. And, and the, sto- the question is asked, if he had walked all those miles before, why take a donkey to go just the rest of the miles, the distance? Because, my friends, prophecy is about to be fulfilled. This was no accident. Jesus knew precisely what was happening, what time of human history was taking place. So when he, when he got to that place, he decided to begin the whole process of his last week with declaring who he was. Two things are important when we think of Jesus fulfilling prophecy. The first is that Jesus lives with a consciousness of who he was. 
from the very beginning of his life, in Luke chapter 2, when his parents didn't know where he was, and they went back to Jerusalem, and they found him, he said to his mother and his father, earthly father, don't you know that I should be about my father's business? Jesus was conscious, even at the age of 12, that he was a part of human history. And Matthew now, Matthew is going to take us all through his gospel. Listen to this. Matthew 1.22, he was fulfilling prophecy at his birth. Matthew 2.15, he is fulfilling prophecy. Matthew 8.17, he is fulfilling prophecy. Matthew 12.17, he is fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is bringing the past right to the present. And when, when he told his disciples to do what he was going to, what he was about to do, the point must be understood that Jesus knew the prophetic time clock. And he knew what time it was in his life, in the history that God had actually planned before the world was. And so he could speak with that consciousness. You know, um, my, my, my son, I should say our son, um, is, is right now going through a, a period of his life, a, a nice period, not any problem really. Uh, he, he is, he is um, I'm glad he's not here to hear me say this. He's struggling between two girls. What a nice problem to have. I didn't have that. Any, any girl I thought I'd love, they'd say, I like you like a brother. And that ended it, you know. <laughs> and, and he wants to know, Dad, Mom, how, how do I know which one? How do I, how I know what to do? I, know what, I feel I know what God wants me to do, but I'm not too sure about making a choice here. My friend, Jesus went through no such problem. Each step of Christ's life was a step ordained to fulfill what God had predicted before there was time. And in time, he told Zacharias to write. And 500 years before, Zacharias wrote what was taking place on that first Palm Sunday. And Jesus going into Jerusalem as he's mounting that place was able to say, this is the time on the calendar of God that I am to fulfill what was prophesied of me 500 years ago. Jesus, he's no ordinary man even though he's a man. He comes into the world to unfold the divine plan for human history before there was a world. And Palm Sunday is the unfolding of that. But that was not the only thing that was needed. Not only do we have the consciousness of Christ, we have the confession, the confession of Matthew. Matthew said, this is that. Matthew was one of the early disciples and he lived with Christ and he walked with Christ and he listened to Christ and he observed Christ. And when this whole event is taking place, Matthew was able to put his biblical knowledge in play 
and he was able to come to the conclusion, as I look at Christ, as I listen to him, as I observed his life, there's only one conclusion that I can come to. It is the conclusion that Jesus is God's Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. No one else could fit that category. You know, there are certain people who have come after Jesus. Uh, I heard, of, I don't even remember where I saw it, one guy who changed his name to God. <laughs> That's his first name. And, and I, I, I wonder, you know, who will answer when the name God is mentioned? He or the other God? <laughs> no one fits that. Matthew saw in Jesus a fulfillment of history. So Matthew is saying history is not dead events that took place in the life of Christ. History is Christ fulfilling it. History is the work of God. It is the voice of God speaking to the conscience and to countries as we shall see. And so Matthew's confession helps us. All these things, said John, they are written that you might believe. The history of the Bible is believable history. What Matthew is saying is not being made up. It is not some fanciful story he's trying to tell us. He has seen the unveiling of the Christ. And Matthew confessed this is taking place because God told a prophet 500 years ago to write it. And he did. That's the confession of Matthew. But I want you to see the concession of Christ. The concession of Christ. Isn't it amazing? You know, for example, this, this guy, I noticed some of you groaned when I said this guy changed his name to God. Because you think, what an insane dummy. What was he trying to prove? C.S. Lewis says that, that we should not be making stupid statements about Jesus like this one. He was a good man. C.S. Lewis says it is ludicrous to call him a good man if what he's saying isn't true. And you notice that as the people were beginning to line up on the road and they confess with Matthew, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Behold your king. You notice that Jesus did not deny it. He didn't deny it. All the other points in Christ's life in John 6:15 when they tried to make him king he would withdraw from their presence he would not become what god had brought him into the world to become until it was god's time to do so and when people saw the miracles that he did they thought this must be the messiah we should crown him and jesus said no when the devil said to him all these things i will give to you if you will bow down jesus said no 
Jesus knew the time. Jesus knew who he was. And my friends, Matthew is saying, Jesus did not deny that he was indeed the Messiah because if he had denied it, he would have been guilty of sin. If he had denied it. At every other point when Jesus is being interrogated, he kept silent. He kept silent. And in Matthew 26, the high priest said, I adjure you in the name of the living God to tell us whether you are the Christ or not. And for the first time, Jesus answers. For the first time, he answered. Why? Because in Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 1, God said that when someone is aware of something that is true, if he denies it, he will be guilty of sin. And Jesus, conscious of what the Father had put way back in the Old Testament, if he denied that he was the Christ, he would have been guilty of sin. He couldn't die for your sins or mine. But he answered, because he was conscious not only of God's timetable, but he was conscious that he was the answer to all, all, every prophecy expressed from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is the fulfiller of them. That's why we can't take Jesus lightly, friends. That's why we can't say Jesus is like any other man. He's not. No other man is, is, is crazy enough to come and say, I, I am the Christ. They will try. But what are the proofs? The proofs, my friends, is a cross and an empty tomb. If any man can prove that they are that man, then we can believe them, but none can. And so Jesus, the first snapshot we get of Palm Sunday is Jesus, the fulfiller of prophecy. Secondly, from the book of Mark, the second snapshot we get is the omniscience of Jesus. Look at what he says in Mark chapter 11, verse 2. He tells, John, uh, tells the disciples to go in and they will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. That's a remarkable statement. He knew that no one had ever sat there. He was, you know, as I was studying this, I thought to myself, what if someone wanted to look at that beast and say, I wonder what it feels like to sit on a donkey. Let me, let me look around. Nobody's watching. I'm going to take a ride. No. Jesus said no one had ever sat on that beast. He knew that. He wasn't there with the beast. He wasn't in the presence of the beast all the time. Ah, he wasn't there in the presence of the beast all the time. But the beast was in his presence all the time. Because he's omniscient. He knows. In John chapter 1, Philip goes out and he finds Nathanael. And he says to Nathanael, we have found the Messiah. The prophet of whom it was written. He's the, the prophet from Nazareth. And you remember what Nathanael said. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? <laughs> 
And when Nathanael was coming to Jesus and Jesus heard him, Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said, he understood what Jesus meant. And how do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus said this, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Then, you know, that's, a, that's a comforting statement as well as a frightening one. You, you know, if no human eyes are on me, can I run the risk of doing something that I would be embarrassed if human eyes would see? I have news for you, friends. When there are no human eyes, there is the divine eyes. When there are no human eyes on me, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. He demonstrates his his. His awareness, he knows what is in man. So the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. (laughs) You know, I was thinking of that in studying. You know, they can't find that black box. They should try praying. Because he knows where it is. Say, if I, if, I may, if, I, if, I, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say to the darkness that it will cover me, the darkness is at, as light to you. Oh, my friends, what Jesus is showing us in these little snapshots is that he is one who is aware of our going and our coming. He knows the pains that you feel. He knows the hurt that you have gone through. He knows everything that seeks to bring darkness upon your soul and heaviness to your heart. He knows it. But Jesus doesn't only know, my friends, our location. He knows our disposition. He knows our disposition. In John 2, 23 to 25, many believed on Jesus, and listen to what the text says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in man. He knew what was in, he, he knows what the stuff that you and I are made of. <laughs> You know, I think of the little, the little story, a uh, little nursery rhyme. What are little boys made of? And, and, and you know the nasty things they say about this gender? And what are little girls made of? Oh, my. Wow. Oh, my friends. That's only a nursery rhyme, remember. Because little boys and little girls are made of the same thing, a life that is devoid of God until Jesus Christ becomes a part of it. He knew what was in man. 
this is, again, this is a frightening statement. If Jesus knows what is in me, that's a divine quality. In 1 Kings 8.39, Thou alone know the hearts of all the sons of man. There is not a person upon the face of the earth. You know, I, I think of it. No one knows the motive for Putin going into Ukraine. And the rest of the world is trying the best they can to see if they can, they can, they can cause him to, to scream uncle. We may never know. But does that mean that nobody knows? Jesus knows what is in man. He knows what is in your heart. He knows what is in my heart. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows what you are thinking. He's never absent from, from where we are. As you know, this morning I, I heard, I was listening to the news early this morning, and, and I was listening to what is happening in the Cameroon. And in the Cameroon, the churches are going through a tremendous persecution right now. The Pentecostal church, and this was from, from um, public radio was saying this, which is quite interesting. And, and, and Christians are being persecuted and, and suffering greatly in the Cameroon right now. And as I listened to that, I, I confess to you, I felt, I felt like John the Baptist. You remember when John was suffering? He called his disciples to them and said, go, go to, go, you know, the one that I, that I acknowledge to be the Lamb of God, go to him and ask him if he's the right one. John was hurting and John was saying, if, 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 he's, if I was able to identify him as the Son of God, the Lamb of God, then, then why am I suffering the way I am here? My friends, I cannot answer for why you suffer or why I suffer, but I know that as a child of God, we never suffer alone. We never suffer alone. He knows what's there. Peter in, one, in, in, in John 21 says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And sometimes, even when my behavior denies my love for Christ, he knows that I love him. That's comforting. That's comforting. Does Jesus care when our hearts break? Yes, he does, friends. And the cross is there to tell us that he cares. The cross is there. The snapshot of omniscience. He knows. The third shot is from the Gospel of Luke. Luke 19. And in Luke 19, where the triumphant entry is recorded, Luke tells us something that the others do not tell us. Remember I said that Jesus was now coming on the mount. Jerusalem is up. He was going up to Jerusalem. And believe me, friends, that is, is as literal as they come. If you have been to, uh, to uh, Israel, any place that you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up. So when the Bible says you're going up, it's literal. It's not fictional. 
And I remember the night we were going, and we're, we're, we're in this, <laughs> I was not riding a donkey, I can tell you right now. We were in a nice, big, air-conditioned bus. And there were 43 of us. And as, as, as we were, were coming from Jericho, going to Jerusalem, the, 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 the day was giving place to the night. And all of a sudden, the city of Jerusalem just rose up. And there was a guy, a trumpet player, on, on, with us. And he pulled out his trumpet and he began to play. Jerusalem, I walk today where Jesus walked. It was a moving time. Moving time. I didn't think of what Jesus did then as I did at studying this in Luke 19.41. When I saw the city, I was amazed. When Jesus saw the city, the text says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Feel it with me, friends. There are two passages, really three, but two passages that use the term for us that Jesus wept. One is in John 11.35 at the grave of Lazarus when he was told where the, where the body was. It says Jesus wept. The Greek word that is used for Jesus wept in John 11.35 is, is, is a word that speaks of tears filling the eyes and rolling down the cheeks. The uniqueness of Scripture. The same English word, wept, used in Luke here, is, is another Greek word, not the same as that one. This one, listen, this one speaks of Jesus wailing, sobbing, you could hear him if you could not see him. You couldn't see the tears, but you could hear the pathos that, that was happening in his heart. Luke said when Jesus saw the city, he wept. Now what is it? See, Jesus knows all things. Jesus knew what was in the city, you see. Jesus knew that in the city were hurting people. People who were deceived. People who were taking advantage of. Jesus knew the ugliness of mankind to mankind. All that. But my friends, that's not why Jesus is weeping. Verse 44 tells us this. That Jesus was weeping because of the spiritual ignorance of Jerusalem. The spiritual ignorance. They did not know the time of God's visit. See, the, the word visit is, is a unique word again. It speaks of a divine, someone who comes to inspect. Someone who comes to pass judgment. There was a divine presence for the purpose of bringing salvation out of the chaos that the city was in. And Jesus knew how sin had twisted the minds and the relationships of people. But Jesus knew that, that God knowing this, prepared beforehand that a Messiah would come. 
And Jesus knew that the time had come for him to show them how God is going to take care of the darkness of the city, of the pains in the city, of the hurts in the city, of the disappointments in the city. He's saying, God was visiting you and you did not know it. That's why Jesus is weeping. Spiritual ignorance. Oh, friends. Every time I read that, I, I, I have to look into my own heart. Because weeping is not something that I do easily. Weeping is not something that I do readily. But if Jesus was moved with the condition of the city, when you go to work tomorrow morning, when I drive through Salem tomorrow morning, coming here, wherever you go tomorrow to school, will there be tears on your cheeks for the city? For the condition that you're driving through? You know, I heard a story last night. <laughs> Where else the Canadian news? And a young girl at 16 or 17 left British Columbia. She made contact with another woman in Calgary. And this young woman was told that, there is, that she can find a job and she would help her to find a job if she would leave British Columbia and go to Alberta, which she did. And it wasn't long that she got to Calgary that she realized that this woman was a mistress. And she invited this young girl who found herself as a sex slave that was actually perpetrated by this woman. I sat and I listened to that. And I tried to, to, to think, how could anybody do when she knew why she was calling this young girl she knew why she wanted this girl to come. And the whole thing was a setup to use her for her greed. I got angry. Jesus wept. You see, if I get angry, I could feel it now and forget it later on. But if I weep, friends, if I weep, it is coming outside of me, uh, inside of me. If I weep, it is because I see, because I know, I know the consequences, and I know the cost. Many of you will remember that young girl in Albany last week that stood in front of the train, 16 years old. 16. Why would a 16-year-old give up on life? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. This is a snapshot we, we don't even want to think about. What tears do I have for the failure of others? Listen, I might have tears for someone who suffers, but I'm going to tell you I don't have any tears for someone who caused the suffering. <laughs> Jesus did. On the cross, the first thing he did was to ask for forgiveness for his enemies. 
First thing he did. Someone has poetically put the tears of Jesus. The son of God in tears. The wandering angels see. Be admonished, O my soul. He shed those tears for thee. What is your pain this morning? He will let you go through it, but he will not let you go through it alone. He shed a tear. See, because behind, behind every human pain is the devil's lie. It was the devil who said to Eve, he knows, he knows that if you, if you eat, you will become like God. And, and Eve did and plunged the race into a kind of situation now where it, it cannot rescue itself from the depth to which it had been taken. It takes the Son of God on the cross to do that. And Jesus wept because he knows the cause of human pain. Lastly, on Palm Sunday, Jesus is the main attraction. Jesus is the main attraction. John chapter 12. And in John, again, he gives us some aspect of Palm Sunday that we do not see in the other Gospels. But in John chapter 12, verses 17 to 19, we see these words, or hear these words from, from John. John 12, 17 to 19. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. And this reason, for this reason also, people went and met him because they heard that he had performed these miracles or these signs. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, we are not doing any good. The whole world is gone after him. Those are interesting words. Matthew says, they said, who is this? Now I want you to see, my friends, that the attention of Palm Sunday was riveted upon Christ. Because only he fulfills prophecy. Only he knows my broken heart. Only he would shed a tear for me. And so... So the eyes are riveted. The people who were with him when he raised Lazarus from the dead, some who had seen it, began to say, is he going to be there? I'm going to be there. They were there. They were there to celebrate Passover. That time, that time when Israel was delivered from Egypt, when the lamb was slain, Paul said, Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is the one who was slain for us. You know, it's, uh, Josephus, one of the, the early um, historians of the life of Israel, is suggesting that on that Passover day, people who brought their lambs, there were at least 250,000 lambs slain. 250,000 lambs slain. John and I were visiting Stan this past week. We took the communion to him. <laughs> and, and, of course, when we go there, I counted five new things I learned. 
visiting stand, and one of them is how to kill a rabbit. And, and he, was, he was telling us how you kill a rabbit. And I thought, really? People do that to, to this harmless little creature? And then they, on top of that, they eat it. Wow. I will not respond to that. Uh, <laughs> it, might br- it might bring back memories at the inappropriate time. But can you imagine? 250,000. Can you imagine the aroma? I mean, can you imagine the carcasses that you would see there? And they were doing this, they were doing this. Year after year after year after year after year. They raised those sheep for that purpose. In fact, this is why some of them were selling these sheep in the house of the Lord. That's why Jesus kicked them out. Because he was saying, you no longer need to slay any more sheep. I am the Lamb of God that is going to give my life for the sins of the world. So John says he was the main attraction. All the world is going out after him. Three things very quickly. First, he was attracted to the people because of his power. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Luke tells us that they were going through this because of the many miracles they had seen performed by Jesus. But the ultimate is to overcome death. And Lazarus was now decaying in the tomb. And Jesus, with one word, brought all the ingredients of a healthy life back into existence. And when he said, Lazarus, come forth, he came. Some, someone has interestingly said, the reason he said Lazarus is because he didn't want everyone to come. That's the power of Jesus. The day is coming, says John in chapter 5, when all that are in the grave will hear his voice. He will speak again because he has power to give life. This is what Luke wants us to understand. My friends, whatever you're suffering with this morning, Jesus has power to do something about it. When he becomes the attraction It is not when I become the center of the situation. It's when Jesus is the attraction. And please listen to me, and I'm not going to get into this. I want you to understand that before the crowd started to scream that Jesus is the Messiah, Hosanna, before they said it, his disciples said it. And if the community is to know that Jesus is, they will know it from you. They'll know it from me. It was the disciples who first took their garments and put it on the donkey so that Jesus could sit in it. And when the rest of the world saw that they were doing, that he meant that much to them, then they copied them. He's the the attraction. The attraction. No power on earth is equal to him. John James Stewart, one of my favorite writers, said this, from that far day when he took the deadly cross and converted it into a glorious throne, that power 
like a streak of gold has marked the centuries. Empires have come and fell down before it. Through his influence, great movements of reform have swept the earth. In his name, men and women of every age and race wrought righteousness, stopped the mouths of lions, and out of weakness have made, they were made strong. He has been the master force behind the onward march of the church. The power of Jesus. And my friends, how we need to know this. We need to know this now. Because there are things happening in your time and mind that is questioning whether Jesus even existed for that matter. And he must, his power must be seen in your life and mind for the world to believe. Secondly, not only for his power, but his presence. His presence. John 12, 19. The whole world is gone after him. Isn't it amazing that in the midst of thousands, and again, Josephus said there were millions of people in the city for the, for the, 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 the Passover, but in the midst of all that crowd, Jesus was singled out. They could tell Jesus from the rest of the crowd, all the world is gone after him. The multitude was there to remember an event and John said the event was turned into a person. His presence. May I close again? The next P there was they were attracted to his presence and you and I should be as well. I close with this. The presence of Jesus. Someone may ask and I'm just going to praise this. Someone may ask, Jesus lived over 2,000 years ago on earth. He lived in a little Galilean town. He does not live in a world of, he didn't live in a world of technology. He did not live in a world of, 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 of uh, smartphones. How can he have any significance to what I can hold in my hands now, what I can see with a little screen in front of me, how could, how could someone who lived over 2,000 years ago have any significance to me living in the 21st century? Because, my friends, what Jesus came to deal with existed then and exists now. Broken people. Broken people. The presence of Satan in God's world, Jesus came that he might destroy the work of Satan. He's, so that, that Jesus who lived then, who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. The writer to the book of Hebrews tells us something of the promise. And here's the promise. Here's the the snapshot for you and for me. The Galilean who lived over 2,000 years ago made a promise to his disciples on his way back to glory. And then he puts it like this, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
We have the presence of Christ, my friends. And if we would, if we would practice that now, I tell you, people would see how much he means to us and what we mean to him. And people will take off their coats and put it for Jesus to sit on as they did then. Four snapshots of Palm Sunday. The fulfiller of prophecy. The God who knows. The God who weeps. And the God who is the center of the attraction. Is he your attraction today? Is he the one who answers to your cry? I beg you, make him so. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for these snapshots of your son. Oh, I pray that between now and the end of this service, there will be a new snapshot. And that snapshot will be of me and Christ. That we will be willing to take off our coats, symbolically speaking, and say to Jesus, as these were saying with what they did, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be.